0: This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19th, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress, to the White House, to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org/donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org/donate. Thank you. God. So help me God.
1: Congratulations, Mr. Speaker.
0: The historic nature of my speakership is not lost on me. This will be the first time in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia that we have had a speaker who was as intelligent as this <laughs> and as handsome as this No, what y'all laughing at? It's true. (laughs) No, no, let me stop. But it's an honor and a privilege to be elected by my peers as the first black speaker of the House of Delegates. 405 years after the founding of the longest continuous democratic elected body in the Western Hemisphere. Also, Coincidentally, 405 years after the first enslaved people arrived here. Not far from where we stand, down the road in Hampton Roads.
1: Virginia Speaker Don Scott, January 10th, 2024, what was that
0: day like for you? It was amazing. Uh, It was exhilarating. It felt like the culmination of a lifetime of working hard, finally coming to fruition it was a day of pride i was very proud of not only of my family and myself but uh, everyone who worked with me and worked for me along the way so it was just a, an amazing uh, day uh, one of the greatest days in my life
1: 58th speaker of the virginia house of delegates first black speaker
0: it is breathtaking it is amazing i think about all of the people that came before me who allowed me to be in this place. I think about the pain and the trauma that those uh, enslaved people had to endure to get me where I am. That trauma and pain birthed uh, the opportunity that I have right now to serve as speaker. So I don't uh, take that opportunity for for granted. I'm very proud and I feel a sense of responsibility and obligation to make sure that I live up to the dreams and goals of those people who come before me.
1: You were first elected to the House of Delegates in 2019, and five years later, your speaker. How does that happen?
0: Uh, a whole lot of uh, praying, of faith, being in the right moment at the wrong time, right time, and sometimes the wrong time. Uh, I have a strong faith in God. I know I would not be here but for that favor. Uh, I'm very assured of that. And so I know that to do it, not even to do it in a long period of time, you have to have some favor, but to do it in a short amount of time that I did, I think it has to be, it's a gift. And I know it's a gift from from God. And a lot of people prayed for me to be in this position. And so I don't want to let those people down. I want to do a great job, not just be the first black speaker, but be a great speaker. And to me, being a great speaker is just making sure that we're efficient. We get things done. We do it in a timely fashion and we keep the civility that the House of Delegates has always been known for, while also having a very heated um, discussion about how we need to go forward with the ideas that we have in the country.
1: I did some quick math when we set up this interview. Looking at the 405-year history of the House of Delegates here in Virginia, about half
0: the speakers were slave owners. Is that important to note that? Wow, I didn't know that, but it is amazing, and I think it is important to know that. I think it really just lets you know how far we've come not only as a commonwealth, but as a country. And that I think it's important that we always reflect on that history. Because if we don't, we're, they, they say doomed to repeat it. So I think it's important that we highlight that and we understand that the ideas that these men had, even though they were flawed themselves, the ideas last forever, they're eternal. These ideas around life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these ideas were eternal. Uh, they're gifts from God that came through men, and I know that even though these men weren't perfect, the ideals can last forever, and we have an obligation and opportunity to continue that posterity and that prosperity out to our posterity, if that makes sense.
1: Now, two of the last three speakers of the House of Delegates were not raised in Virginia. The first woman, the first black speaker, but not being raised in Virginia. What does that say about the Commonwealth?
0: Well, I think it says that they're open-minded, that folks can come to the Commonwealth and make a life for themselves to have an impact. If you want to work here, if you want to do things that help move the Commonwealth, all of our wealth, income, and moving forward, then you get the opportunity to lead, and I think that says a lot about Virginians in general, uh, and says a lot about uh, what we need to do to continue moving forward. How welcoming a state we are! There are a lot of folks that come to Virginia that are transient—folks in the military like myself—and others that come here or come here for our great educational system and stay, or come here for great jobs and stay. And because of that, Virginia is very opening and welcoming. We need to keep it that way. That's the reason that Virginia was the number one state to do business in a couple of times in a row a few years ago, because it was so welcoming and inclusive uh, as compared to some of the other southern states. Let's go back
1: to January 10th, 2024. A little bit more of your speech.
0: I got to honor her today. She was uh, orphaned as a child. She raised six children by herself. I used to tell her, don't worry, God God is my father, and he would take care of us. So I know I'm a little soft right now, but I'm really tough. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I got that toughness from her. I was struggling. Some of y'all know my story. I would really just come out of jail, real talk. And she looked at me and didn't see anything that the world sees. She looked at me and saw her aspiration, her husband, her friend, her confidant. Thank you. Thank you. When I was at my lowest, you looked at me and you saw me exactly where I'm standing right now. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Speaker Scott, you were talking about Helen and Melanda and The Washington Post quoted you as saying, or wrote about you saying, he never realized how much his mother struggled until as an adult, he saw a social security document that suggested she never earned more than $13,000 a year.
0: Yeah, um, my wife, Melanda, and my wife, uh, and my mom, Helen, uh, and a lot of other women have always nurtured me and pushed me. It was amazing to me um, to see that And so like like so many other mothers black and white who don't have all of the resources they need try to figure out how to make ends meet i don't know how she did it i really don't when i look back because you know i do pretty well now and sometimes things can still get a little little dicey but she did what she had to do raising six kids and i'm and i'm grateful for that and um on my wife you know she saw something in me that a lot of folks probably wouldn't see Uh, After experiencing what I have, the adversity that I have, she saw me uh, as I was and said, you know what, maybe one day he'll be somebody. Uh, And and she fell in love with the aspirational Don uh, and not the Don that she saw at that moment. Childhood in Houston. Yes. Yep. Part of my childhood. uh, A lot of it in Jasper, Texas, too. I used to go back and forth to East Texas. That's where my mother and my father are from. And I spent a lot of time growing up there. So... I was always a little too country for the city and a little too urban for the country. So I was able to talk to a lot of different folks. Uh, I tell people all the time, I was, I was already um, uh, multilingual because I could speak country and city uh, at the same time. And, uh, and in Texas, that's very valuable. And so I think growing up in Houston kind of formed me and really inspired me to be where I am today. And at times your mother parked you in the public library. Yeah, my brother and I, I, have a brother that's two years younger than I, and we had some older brothers and sisters that was a larger gap. They were probably about eight years older than us. And so my mom had to work. She had to work a couple of jobs. So in the mornings early, she would drop us off. We'd be waiting at the, law, at the public library, waiting on them to open the door. We'd stay in the library until it closed. It might be 7 o'clock, and we'd be there when they locked up. And a little while after they locked up, she'd come pick us up. So at that time, we had a lifelong love of reading and learning. And she didn't know that she was, she probably knew what she was doing, but it was also a safe place to be. And so um, it's no mistake that I could, I, I love to read even to this day. And, and um, she instilled that love with me. My mother never had a college degree, but she loved reading herself. And so she instilled that love of reading in all of us.
1: What kind of books did you gravitate to? When I was time?
0: young? I loved all the detective. I loved uh, Pippi Longstocking, uh, The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, any of those detective mystery kind of books when I was a kid. And then as I got older, I started reading uh, some more. I loved fiction. I loved um, a lot of great storytelling. And then as I got a little older, I started getting more into to uh, nonfiction history and biographies. I'm reading some stuff now. I'm always reading something uh, just to make sure that I stay abreast because I think, you know, you have to constantly be, you know, challenging your mind and learning new things. I'm reading about a former great Texan right now, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. I'm reading Master of the Senate right now. And man, they think politics are rough now. It's nothing compared to how it was back then. Those guys were tough. Well, yes, I
1: was snooping on your desk before we started (laughs) this interview, and I saw Robert Caro's Master
0: of the Senate. Yes, yeah. And what do you think of that? I just think, you know, we live in a different time. Uh, Those people are, I mean, Maybe I'm naive, but they just seemed a lot more manipulative then than they are now. Uh, And Lyndon Baines Johnson was the best at it at that time. I read the book and I'm like, wow, I didn't know he was doing some of the things that he did. Uh, It was probably he was crude, uh, probably would never be accepted. Now, I mean, me, too, would have ate him up before he ever got out of Texas. But uh, at the end of the day, he ended up being successful. He got away with it, uh, had a lot of, of some things that were overtly racist. And, uh, but he was a, still beloved by a lot of folks in the black community. And even to this day, I tell some of my friends in my mind, he, you know, as much as I love, he was the greatest president for his time and my time in my lifetime, other than, you know, my, 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 my idol, Barack Obama. But Lyndon Baines Johnson passed the civil rights legislation that put me where I am today. I was born in 1965. You talk about the 58th speaker of the house. I'm 58 years old right now. And 1965 was the year that the Voting Rights Act was passed. That's the year that the um, Selma, Alabama, the march across um, the bridge, uh, Pettus Bridge happened with John Lewis. And that led to the Voting Rights Act being passed. So in my mind, that's when America really became what we view as America, which was a multicultural, multi-ethnic country that began to become what it was supposed to be. So we've only really been doing this American experiment the way I think it was intended to be, 58 years since voting rights. And we're still fighting to make sure that we continue to implement and progress with that Voting Rights Act. Another book on your desk, Basic Brown. Well, you know, the story of Willie Brown, I've been nibbling and reading through him as well. He was a character. He was very charismatic. He was very dashing, but he was also very strategic. He was very brilliant. He was very intelligent. And that's one of the things that I want to be as a speaker. I not only want to be the first black speaker, but I want to continue to be strategic to reach the goals and objectives of not only me and my family, but our commonwealth. I want every child to have the same opportunity that my children and my family have. And I want the legislature to really operate in an efficient way and effective way. And he did it for a long time, and so I, I'm looking forward to, to continue to learn more about, about Mr. Brown.
1: Author Denise Gitchum, Politics for People Who Hate Politics.
0: Yeah, that book was a gift from a fellow uh, delegate, her name is a Republican delegate named Tata, Ann Tata, and Ferrell Tata, brought it by. I've been going through it. It's a pretty good book. The lady who wrote the book actually ran as a Republican in California. And then she kind of figured out that wasn't for her. And so she wrote this book uh, about, you know, how do you still be yourself and you still want to be engaged, but not have to be as nasty, uh, as partisan, uh, as argumentative as politics have become now. And so as toxic, I guess, as politics are now. So it's a good book to remind us that there are people on the other side of of the aisle of goodwill who want to work on big problems together. And we don't have to always be uh, at each other's throats. And that's kind of why I keep that book. It's funny that I I didn't even know y'all were going to do the interview in this room. We thought we were going to do it at the Capitol. But I keep those books on my desk when I have these moments to kind of touch each one. And then I'm always listening to a book because I'm always trying to learn and get better and, and, keep, and keep abreast of what's going on and, and understand how different people think. And I like to challenge myself. I like to talk to Republicans and Democrats. I think you have to talk to a lot of different people. Otherwise, you'll just get affirmation bias. You only get confirmation bias. You only talk to the people that think like you, then you don't learn anything new.
1: In two corners of your desk, Speaker Scott, the Martin Luther King Memorial and the Abraham Lincoln statue.
0: Yeah, I mean, Abraham Lincoln is my, is my third favorite president behind Barack Obama and, and LBJ. And I think, you know, obviously he, he made some courageous stuff. I think a lot of people try to revise, um, you know, especially in, 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 in the times that we live now, in contemporary times, some of the things that he said. But I think he had to say some things back then that were strategic. That he had to say to continue to move the ball. You know, he said some things like, "If we, you know, if we would be slave and stay union, I'd keep slaves. If we could be free and stay union, I'd, I'd keep, I'd be free. But whatever, by all means, keep the union." And I think he said some things that he had to say to continue to keep the union together to move the country forward. But he may have had, I think, he had other motives, and his motives were always for emancipation. So I have a lot of respect for for him, and obviously, Dr. King is a is a hero a giant. Um, I'm always reminded and humbled that a lot of people who talk about Dr. King today, they like to use his words and his speeches, but they don't like to use his actions. He was a man of action, not only a man that gave a lot of flowery speeches, he actually put his body on the line in these communities, which is what led to his assassination. He was literally in Memphis getting ready to go march with striking garbage workers. So he put his not just his eloquent speech on the line, but he also put his body on the line, which is why I have a lot of respect for him. And I hear so many people today that try to just use a clip of a speech, but they don't share anything in common with his philosophy towards uh, dealing with human beings and giving every person the opportunity um, to move forward in this country and to eradicate racism and hate. And I think that's what he stood for.
1: I wanna quote you from January 10th, 2024, I remember my mother in the courtroom. I can hear the little yelp that she made when a judge said 10 years. I still hear that sometimes. Oh,
0: absolutely. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in the courtroom and I'm standing, at the, uh, I'm, sitting at the, I'm standing up now at the defendant's table and the judge is about to pronounce my sentence and I'm hopeful that I might get some, uh, some a little bit more mercy. I had never been in trouble before. I had served my country. And I was hoping that I would get a little, a little more grace, and maybe get a, the judge had some latitude to go below. And he probably could have gave me even more time than he did. Uh, but um, I remember hearing my mother when he said ten years. You know, she couldn't believe it, and that yelp of pain. Um, it, it always it always stays with me, and it's always motivating, and it always lets me know how fragile our freedom is, and how perilous. It is, and if you make one wrong move, sometimes it could be the literally the, uh, the the end of your life as you know it.
1: How did you end up at the defendant's table?
0: Well, I was uh, I was in my third year of law school in my final semester at LSU Law School, and uh, a person had reached out to me to ask me to uh, go pick up some some proceeds, drug money. Uh, I knew what it was. Uh, but I didn't think I was selling drugs. And at that time, even though I was in law school, it didn't, didn't click that I'd be put in a crack cocaine conspiracy, which I never sold in. But I went to uh, to Alabama to meet someone who gave me, I think it was like 20 some thousand dollars in a bag of of drug money of, at, the, at the time. And so when I'm sitting in the, I think it was an IHOP or a Denny's restaurant, and I remember looking out the window and saying, wow, there's a lot of police out there. I didn't know they were there for me. But, uh, and so... Um, they came in and they arrested me, and uh, they, next thing I know, I'm in a crack cocaine conspiracy with two people that I really don't know. One of them I knew a little bit, and I had met before, and the other one I didn't know at all. And then they both were testifying against me, and then I, they took pleas, and I don't know what happened to them. I still don't. And um, I ended up having a plea out because I was looking at much more time. I played no low contender, which just no contest, and um, ended up getting 10 years. That's how I got there. One night, one bad day, one bad decision. It could have been worse. Sometimes I tell people it could have been worse because it could have been somebody with a gun. I could have been meeting somebody who didn't know me, could have shot me. So everything works out for good at the end of the day, you know, and that's why um, my faith is so strong because I don't even know if I would be here but for that experience. So sometimes, you know, God tells you no or not yet so he can tell you yes later, and that's the way I look. I looked at this uh, opportunity.
1: Seven years and eight months in prison. Yeah. You talk about two things, being anointed as you were going in,
0: and pain into purpose. Yeah. Um, My mother had a friend named B. Simon, and when this case was going on, I was fighting it. She's deceased now, but my mother called her over to her house. She had worked with her Uh, At a high school, my mother had been like an administrative assistant at the school. And B came over and. uh, Miss Simon came over and prayed over me, and then she put this, you know, holy oil on my head and really prayed over me. And I'm not lying. We both. Everybody was in tears. And uh, she basically told me, look, you're going to be okay. You may have to go through some stuff, but you keep your faith in God. Stay grounded. You were, you know, you were, you were able to endure this and you're going to be okay. And I believe that. And so even though I was disappointed in what the judge said that day, when I went, after I was sentenced, I went to the back to be fingerprinted. And the judge had told me, I'm going to let you go home and turn yourself in, which is amazing to me that somebody going to turn yourself in. And you didn't finish sin. law school too, didn't you? I, I graduated from, I finished, I graduated prior to that. I'd already graduated. And... um I went to the back and asked the people, could I kneel down and pray? I did. And I literally said "When Miss Simon told me, you know, not your will, you know, nevertheless, not your, not your will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And uh, I tried to stay in that moment that entire time that I was in prison. You know, nevertheless, I call it the nevertheless principle. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And I tried to stay in that moment the entire time, understanding that I didn't understand what my purpose would be but I know out of this pain would come some purpose. And I don't attribute, I don't try to point myself like a a Christ-like figure by no means. But I understand in my mind, I thought the punishment was harsher than what I thought I deserved. But I think there is some merit in what I perceive as undeserved suffering. And I think there is some opportunity to move forward and grow when you feel like this is not right and you, can, you could have done better and that you know that you're also responsible for putting yourself in this position. So I said, I'm gonna turn this pain into the purpose that I needed to be to be able to help other people. And I ended up coming out, working really, really hard, taking the bar exam 12 years later after I got out of prison, having never studied again, I graduated in 94. I went to jail in 94. I took the Virginia bar in 2014, and I passed it the first time. So and that's nothing but God, because I was working full time, and I was studying basically online with a barbie course with a laptop, it was me and my laptop while I was on a plane most of the time working. So I know it was a miracle for me. I don't know about other folks, but I know it was a miracle for me. How did you get to Virginia from prison? When I got out, I went to Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I had an uncle there, and he told me, my uncle's name is Warren, he told me, uh, he was an executive at a pharmaceutical company, especially a chemical company. And he told me that when you got out, my father had passed while I was in prison. Um, Didn't get to go to his funeral, that's always gnawing on me. And that's why um, people tell me, I'm named after my father. People tell me to use Don Scott Jr. because I'm junior. But I only want to use Don Scott, because I want his name. Even though he didn't raise me, later on in life, we really became close. And I want his name. And I want his name to be exalted. I want him to know that I loved him. Even though he wasn't there, I understand. Relationships are hard. And so I understand, but I want him. I want everybody, when they see that name, because he was a brilliant man. That he just, he didn't, he wasn't there when I was growing up, but as I got older, when I went to, to jail, his heart was broken. He came to see me in prison. He had lung cancer. My father always had a big afro. I got a picture behind my desk, he got a fro. And uh, when he come to see me in prison, all his hair was gone from the chemo. And when he died, he had been in the Air Force. He didn't have a lot, he worked, he was an engineer, but he had, he had accumulated a lot of money. When he died, he had one life insurance policy. He left it to me. He had four other kids, he had three other children. He didn't name everybody on it, he left it to me. And with that money, I was able to buy my first house. You know, I had a little bit of seed money. So I went to work, I didn't have a lot, but I had a little I think it was maybe fifteen dollars or $20,000, but I used that money to buy my first house in Wilmington, Delaware. So it's amazing that even though he wasn't there at the beginning, he was there at the end. He was there on the other side when I needed it, and so I'm grateful for that. So that's why I won't let them, I try not to put Don Scott Jr. up on my stuff. Sometimes they do, and I tell them not to, because I'm always thoughtful that i want to be, I want this, I want Don Scott's name on this stuff. And I want everybody to know that. And I'm proud of that. So um, that's how I got to Delaware. Let me, so let me get back to how I got to Virginia. Because <laughs> you messed me all up. I'm going to get you anyway. back. Because I'm tough. All right. Um, and now you got me crying. Anyway, it's your fault. So um, I was working for this company doing workforce development. My first job I was doing welding. I came out of... Prison, and there's a guy named Bob Supe in Wilmington, Delaware. I hope he's watching this. He owned a steel fabrication company, and my uncle—I'm thinking my uncle gonna give me some posh job. I'm, you know, I got two degrees. He get me a job doing welding at this Children's Hospital. It was AI Dupont Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and he gets me this this job doing welding, and I'm grateful. And I'm doing this. I'm doing weld, and I'm doing sheet work, metal work, and all this tough work. I'm, I don't know, twenty five, you know, uh, uh, th- stories in the air. I don't remember how many stories, but I know I was shaking like an old Maytag on the spin cycle up there. And so uh, it came a time for them to say, "Hey, I got another job opportunity." And the first time I got another opportunity that was on the ground, I was like, I can't take that job because it's like a $25, $35 delta per hour when I was making up there versus on the ground. So I said, no, I'm gonna stay in the air for a little while. But eventually I came down and I went to work for a workforce development company. I was commuting from Wilmington to Philadelphia. I had a little Honda Civic Um, and I would take that car and I met my wife. My wife was teaching dentistry at the University of Pennsylvania. And her mother and my aunt had went to college together. And so it was like a blind date. And don't tell my wife, she hates the story, but I was still on um, house arrest when I met her. I got permission to go over to my aunt's house. We played Scrabble and we talked. I let her beat me at Scrabble because she was pretty. And I didn't want to beat her up too bad because I wanted to see her again. And uh, don't tell her that. But, um, and so we started dating, but she knew my situation. She was smart, pretty, teaching at an Ivy League school. And she still chose me, which is amazing to me. Uh, We met and a couple years later, we were were married. Um, I ended up, after I proposed to her, I got a opportunity to go and bid on some work in Norfolk, Virginia. I go to Norfolk, Virginia. And I tip for my company and I present, just thinking I'ma tell them what we do, work for us, and I'ma go back to, to Philadelphia because I'm engaged to get married now. They say, hey, if y'all get this contract, you gotta go. You gotta move to Virginia. So I called my fiancé and say, hey, uh I got this job opportunity. We got to move to Virginia. Are you okay? And she said, yeah, I moved. She stayed in my house. She moved into my house from her condo. And uh, I went to Virginia until we got married, which was we were separated for about three or four months. And then we got married in November. And the reason I came to Virginia is because we got that contract. By that time, I started like as a case manager at this company. I was like a deputy project director, then a project director. Then I was the expert on it. It was workforce. And I came to, to Norfolk to help stand it up. And that's how I got to Virginia. When did you start practicing law? I started practicing law. I was on the road. The company I was working for, I got promoted again to vice president and then senior vice president. And I was charge of all of the work across the country. So I was on a plane three nights a week. And by that time, my wife and I had had a daughter, Peyton. And my wife was like, you help make her, you got to come home and help take care of her. So I was like, well, the only other skill I have is this little dusty law degree I have on the wall. And so I decided then I was going to start studying for the bar. So I started studying for the bar Memorial Day weekend of 2014. I I got my Barbie books in. I ordered online. got my books and my online stuff. And I took the bar in July 2014. I passed it. I found out in October, I passed it. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina at a conference. And I got a call from another friend that I knew that was taking the bar that I had met while we was taking the bar. He calls me and says, hey, you passed the bar. I was sitting in my Jeep. I had a Jeep Wrangler by that time. I'm sitting in my Jeep. I'm like, no way, you passed the bar. Because I'm thinking I'm about to take it two, three times you pass the bar. I run to my room, I'm at a hotel at a conference, I pull up the laptop, pull up the thing, and sure enough, I see my name, I almost pass out. It's like seeing a golf ball in a hole that you didn't expect to hit it into. And so, um, then I had to go through the character and fitness committee uh, exam. I had to go before a board of those folks here in Richmond had to go before them, tell them, they look at your credit score, they look at everything, your life, they call your old friends, old professors, they look at everything. And then the character and the fitness committee said, hey, we recommend you get a license, which was rare. Everybody told me I wouldn't get it, get it the first time. They said yes. That's why I know it's God. They said yes. I was shocked. Then I had to go before the board of bar examiners, another group, and uh, went to Charlottesville to see them. That same, that was in 2015, so June of 2015, I go to my, so I took the bar, and passed it in in, um, in October of 2014, I got results. Most people immediately get sworn in, not me because of the circumstances of the old case. I had to go through a lot more steps, I did. June 2015, I go to the board of bar examiners, and i never forget a very great particular lady named Anita Poston, I think she was the chair. Um, and I remember, say, I remember these names, because you remember these people, <laughs> that were nice for no reason. That's what she was. She was nice for no reason. She gave me an opportunity because I can tell she was strict, hardcore, you know, and she said, I'm gonna give you a chance. And she was the person that moved the rest of the board the, the, the vote to um, allow me to practice. So and that was in 2015. Had I not got approved in June of 2015, I would have had to take in the bar again because you have to be sworn in within a year from the time that you take it. So I would have to take it again. I got sworn in, June. I went back. I had a friend that's a Supreme Court justice. His name is Bernard Goodwin. He swore me in. I called him, said, hey, can you swear me in? He said, yes. He swore me in the Chesapeake Circuit Courthouse with my wife and my neighbors, just about three or four people there. He swore me in. What's amazing is, He's the same person who became the Chief Justice and he swore me in on January 10th. I believe in God, no doubt about it. If you don't believe, I'm sitting there looking at him like this is crazy, like this is surreal, I can't believe it. The same person that swore me in in 2015 swore me in January 10th of this year. The exact same person, crazy. What kind of law did you practice? I started out doing, any. I I didn't turn down anything but my collar when I started. (laughs) Whatever kind of work they could come come to me, I would do it. Uh, So I would do criminal, I was doing real estate, I was doing anything that I could do. And um, I started doing well and I started getting some high profile criminal cases. I was doing some personal injury stuff. That's how I started out uh, and I was working hard and then eventually I ended up getting some very, very large cases. Uh, I had a good friend of mine named Jeffrey Bright that I would sometimes call and say, hey, what do you think about this case? Or here's how I think about that. And he had a big PI firm. He got a real huge PI reputation. So I would call him and then he said, how the heck did you get this case? And I said, I don't know. People call me, they like me, I don't know. And so one time I had a really big case and I thought it was a big case. I was about to settle the case. He said, hold on, before you settle it, let me talk to the client and let me let me come by your office and look at your look at your file and look at your records. So he came by, he and his, uh, another partner, and they met with my client, met with me, and we looked at the case and the offer that I was being made, he said, if you take that offer, and it was a great offer, it was like the biggest offer I had at that time. If you take that offer, I'm gonna sue you for my practice. We're gonna get five times that for the client. And we did. And so at that point he was like, look, you're good. You need to join this firm. And I said, the only way I joined is as a partner Okay, you're going to be a partner. And so now I'm a partner at uh, Brighton Betty Eisen Law Firm. It's one of the best and largest and most effective uh, personal injury law firms in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We have several offices across the state, including here in Richmond.
1: What do you bring, what talents do you bring to being a trial attorney?
0: I think uh, to me, one of the best things about being uh, a trial attorney, the number one talent is you have to be able to connect with people. I think I've been through so many different environments between military, jail, growing up the way I did, um, now having a little bit of success. I think the number one thing you'd be is the empathy to listen to people's stories, empathy to be able to help tell that story in a way and mesh you with the law. And I think my mother told me this uh, recently, and I understand what she's saying now. She said, you were born to do this. She said, God would have been offended had you not been exactly where you are right now, doing everything that you're doing now. This is what the gift that you have. So I look at um, the number one talent you bring is a talent that you've been given. And I think you have a duty to use it uh, to help folks. And I think some of the stories I hear trying to help people who've been hurt or help people who've been in the system or help people who need to get the best Result that they possibly can out of the system, I can empathize with that. And I think that's, the, that's what I bring to the table.
1: Speaker Scott, one of the cases you worked on got quite a bit of national press, and this was your fellow delegate, Louise Lucas. In Senator. Tor- Senator, yeah. I apologize. Um, Senator Louise Lucas, what was that about?
0: Well, uh, it was politically motivated in my, in my belief. Uh, there were some Confederate memorials in Portsmouth. There was a community outcry. To bring them down. It was around the time of the George Floyd thing and a lot of people wanted to remove these vestiges of Jim Crow out of their communities, especially in a majority black city like Portsmouth where we represent. We both represent Portsmouth. I'm the delegate. She's the senator. And that was, a, she went out to a demonstration and where they were protesting them still being up. They didn't take them down. She went out there at about 2 p.m. on a weekday and said they need to come down and then she left. And went back to work. Well, I don't know, eight, nine hours later that night, some people started knocking them and knocked them down. Months later, police bring charges, a magistrate charges her with destruction of property and some other felonies, several felony offenses, all politically motivated. She had just become president pro tem of the Senate, the first black. Person to be president pro tem of the Senate, she had ascended to that to that lofty role, and she was an easy target, and we ended up defending her successfully, and all the charges were dismissed, and now you know you think she was feisty then, she was she's even feistier now, <laughs> and she's a she's an ally and a colleague and um and a mentor of mine, and I'm very proud to call her my friend.
1: Well, we're sitting just a couple of blocks from the Confederate White House when it was here in Richmond. We know about the Robert E. Lee statue on Monument Avenue down here. What, what, what's your take on these?
0: Man, it is so, the air is just so good to breathe in that now we have a different mindset in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Those the, Most of those things are gone. We still have a couple of things around here that we need to clean up because we got Stonewall Jackson is right in the Capitol Square. Uh, and we can do better than that. And I think the Commonwealth is better than that. We know that the majority of those monuments were not put up Right after the Civil War to honor the po- folks that were, that had died in fighting, as some folks would argue, they were put up in the 50s to send a Jim Crow message, to send a chilling effect to African Americans who were saying we want our we want our we want equality, we want our civil rights, and they were put up to make sure that they send a message to know your place. And we don't have that anymore. Nobody knows their place anymore. Everybody's place is to be equal, to move forward. That's America, and that's Virginia, and we'll do it. Should the Confederate White House remain? It can remain. I think people need to know it and see it. I think people need to go by it and understand what our history is and how easily we can be taken back. And we have to understand that there are people who still hold that mindset. And we need to make sure that those people never touch any, um, have any opportunity to have any leadership in the Commonwealth of Virginia or in the country. We need to move forward.
1: What made you decide in 2019 to run for delegate?
0: Uh, I was perturbed. I was in courthouse, in the courthouses across my region a lot, and I was just seeing things that were wrong happening. And I was serving in the community. I had served uh, as chair of the Economic Development Authority in my city. And I just think we needed to have a different voice. We needed to make some changes. When I originally ran, I ran on criminal justice reform. I ran that we can have a safer community and in a, a community that understands that it should, we shouldn't be shocked when somebody like me comes out of prison and does well. It should be the norm. We should be like, wow, this is norm. We should be shocked when somebody has gone for a while and has had this opportunity to get this access to resources and they don't come back and are successful in our communities. That means we're failing. We should be, we, that's when we should be shocked. And I think we have um, perverse incentives around how we punish um, criminals. Or people who have criminal activity. I'm not saying no, I'm not a soft on crime person. I've been in jail. I understand we got the need for them. I've seen folks that are, you know, we have some sociopaths that walk amongst us and that's okay. And we take care of those people. But we also have some people that have made some mistakes, especially some drug offenses. We tried to warn drugs. It does not work. So that was one of my reasons that I ran that I thought we could do better. And I've been able, since I've been here, to successfully change some laws that helped close down four prisons in the last yeah, a Republican governor just shut down four prisons because he doesn't have any bodies. There's no people there. And guess what? Virginia's recidivism rate is still one of the lowest in the country. Um, we're still, our crime rate is still one of the lowest in the country. So we can do smart things, address our criminal um, justice system, make sure we keep the public safe, but also make sure that we get people back in a position where they can be taxpayers and contributors of society. And that's what everybody should want.
1: Well, I want to quote former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, mm-hmm. Republican, mm-hmm. who has a role in your life in mm-hmm. some way. This is a very special moment, he said, for every young kid that makes a mistake, they can look at Don Scott and say, I'll never give up. I can still be what I want to be in America. What's, what's a Governor McDonnell's relationship or role in your life?
0: Got a lot of respect for Governor McDonald. He actually was the person that restored my rights. You know, in Virginia, you have to get your civil rights restored to vote, to participate on a jury, to do a whole lot of civil actions in the community, to make you whole again. And so Governor McDonald, to his credit and his team, restored my rights. And with that restoration, I was able to take the bar. I couldn't take the bar without that. So I was able to take the bar. And everything that I've done since then, I always give him his, I always give him his props because he didn't have to do that with the way the law is set up Um, before him. He was a trailblazer. A Republican was a trailblazer in criminal justice reform. Imagine that, you know, that's blasphemy, but it can be done. He believes, he's a man of faith. He believes in what he says, and he actually put into action what he says his faith and his beliefs are. And so he actually restored my rights and a lot of others. And he made it easier for Terry McAuliffe, the governor Democrat that came behind him, to do a record number of restorations. Uh, Ralph Northam, the governor Democrat that came behind him to do a record number of restorations because he made it cool. The Republican ended up making it, being the one to make it cool to restore the rights of folks who had paid their debt to society and were ready to be fully embraced by their communities. That's what he did, and he deserves all the credit. Governor McDonald deserves all of the credit for setting Virginia back on course. Unfortunately, uh, Governor Yunkin has taken us in a back, backwards direction, and I'm hopeful that he will follow Governor McDonald's example and get us back on course with his restoration rights.
1: Well, speaking of current Governor Glenn Yunkin, you have a basketball up
0: there on your, on your shelf signed I, by Glenn I Youngkin. forgot to move that. I didn't know y'all were coming in here. What's your relationship with him? Um, I think um, we're moving in the right direction. I think, you know, we can have some conversations that don't include stuff like critical race theory, don't include um, things like teacher tip lines anymore, all of those splashy day one things that he did. Now we can have nice, sobering, grown up conversations together about how we move the Commonwealth forward. I really do believe he is a businessman at heart. I think he's a pragmatist at heart, and he wants to try to get some things done. Uh, And I think, you know, he realizes he won an election and he had an opportunity to put his full agenda forward. And now we had another election and that is a new agenda. And so that's an opportunity to do a reset and move us in the right direction. And I think he's doing that. We talk often. Uh, We'll probably be talking this weekend. Uh, about how we get things done in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think we have an opportunity to get things done, and I think he's going to do that.
1: Quote, Virginia has historically moved back and forth from control of one party in the legislature to the other, and I think what that reflects is the fact that we are a state that is very comfortable working together across party lines in order to get things done. That's a quote after the Democrats' Retook the legislature in Virginia.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think he I think he read the read the tea leaves very well. People expect us to work together. We are fifty one forty nine House of Delegates. We are twenty one nineteen Senate. Democrats control both houses. The governor controls the, Repub- the mansion. A Republican. People expect us to be grown ups, not not D.C. All good, tearing each other apart to be grown-ups, to move things uh, together forward, and we can do that. And there's gonna be some things that we don't, that's some non-negotiables on both sides, and that's okay, that's okay. We can still meet in the middle about a whole lot of things that we can do together, and I think we're gonna do that.
1: Speaker Scott, what is the role of the speaker here in Virginia?
0: Man, I didn't realize there was, you had this much power. I was shocked. I mean, literally, I was like, what? So number one, I appoint every single member in the, in the of the 100 members of the House of Delegates, I, so I appoint every single person to a committee. I appoint every single chair. I'm responsible for safety, public safety in the Capitol. The Capitol Police comes to check on me, come to see me, not only check on me to make sure I'm safe, but they like, anything that happens around the Capitol, they're letting me know. I was like, oh, my God, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, you have to make sure that every single member gets what they need, not just the Democrats. I gotta take care of the Republicans, you know what I mean? I'm responsible, if something happens to a Republican, I need to know, so i make sure that they're safe. So I always, you know, you're not the speaker for the, they don't call you the speaker of the Democrats or the speaker of the Republicans, you're the speaker of the House, and it's the people's house. And I have a responsibility to have open and and, and, and sometimes contentious dialogue. You have to create the environment where people feel comfortable saying their views because every single person got elected by their communities to come do that and then you know we fight hard, and then we go, and, and go, hunt, go, get, go out and get dinner. You know, it's okay. And uh, I think, as a trial lawyer, I'm prepared to do that. I'm, I'm always fighting people and calling them all kinds of names in court. Then we go out and get a beer afterwards, and that's okay.
1: Speaking of which, you took on the Democratic leader here in the House of Delegates, Eileen Fuller Corn, pretty early on in your, in your uh, time in the uh, House. Why'd you do that?
0: Well, I think um, I didn't do it alone. It's my, you know, we, I guess I was in another conspiracy. We, my caucus, uh, decided that we were gonna call for a vote so we can make a change. And because, you know, we had had a loss recently that we felt like we should have won. We were in 55-45 majority for the first time in 20 years. And there were a lot of folks that were disappointed that we lost the majority so easily and so quickly. And so uh, folks asked me to, to take the leadership role, and I did, and uh, I think we got the result that we wanted. We, we took the House back, narrowly, but we're closer to 53 seats than the Republicans are to 50 seats. We only lost, we lost two other seats, one by less than 60 votes and the other by less than 200 votes. So we're very close to growing our majority in and, and the next election. That's my goal. Uh, The day after the election, I'm working on the next election, which is November 2025. I want to do some good work here for the people, work with the governor, and then get prepared for uh, two years from now when we run again.
1: What's your relationship with Todd Gilbert, the former Speaker of the House, the
0: Republican leader? It's funny you say that. He was sitting in my office today, sitting right over here in this corner, uh, and he and I were talking about what we would do, what would happen on the floor today. We have a very good relationship. Uh, I asked him, I said, have you had a relationship with this, with any former speaker? He's like, no. And I said, and I don't know if another one has had a speaker. One of the things, uh, we're both from East Texas. Uh, we're both, you know, Jasper and Newton, Texas, where he was born. And I think um, we can kind of relate. He went to SMU law school, even though he went to UVA undergrad. And we just have a, we're just both very blunt. He's a, he's a trial lawyer. He's a he's a very dogged and rugged trial lawyer, so he knows what the score is. Like, we both are grown ups. We both understand that he's trying to whack my head in, I'm trying to whack his head in, we're into politics, but on policy, we both trying to get some things done. And I think when you have uh, someone like that, that you know that you're going to be, we, can, we have very frank and honest conversations, more so than any other politician uh, here probably even on my own side. I can be very blunt with him, and he can be very blunt with me, and then we can go out and laugh about it and go in our separate corners and fight. It reminds me of the old sheepdog and the wolf uh, in these old uh, cartoons where they would both clock in, say, you tomorrow, Tom, or they they would go at it, and that's kind of how we are. Then You clock out, and you go back, and you're off, and then we'll go get a barbecue lunch together, a barbecue dinner at his favorite uh, Texas barbecue place here in Richmond.
1: Speaker Scott, Virginia is often described as several states within one. Tech, tobacco, tidewater, et cetera, et cetera. How do you be the speaker for all of that?
0: Well, I think it's so funny you say that because I literally, I think you have an obligation to be the speaker for all of that. You, so you have to get out of your comfort zone. And so right after I was elected, I made a pact with a Republican senator named Travis Hackworth. And I said, you know, um, I want to come to Southwest. And I'd been before, just my wife and I driving through in Bristol. And he's like, I'm going to show you. Very, very rural area. Very, very rural area. I mean, very, very, very poor area, which is amazing. It always is amazing to me that, you know, everybody talks about corporations and everything. And the Republican-Democrat brand is Democrats are for the little guy. And Republicans are big corporations. But that area is all Republican, but they're extremely poor. I mean, they're poor in my community in Portsmouth much poor, uh, per capita income is way lower. Um, I saw people who didn't have access to health care that would get checkups once a year at an annual grocery store, volunteer mobile unit. And even they had insurance. There were health deserts out there. And so I asked them, can I come out and uh, see Southwest? And I went out to Richlands. It's not Richlands. It looked like Richlands, but it's just Richlands. And I went out to Tazewell and Lebanon and all the little areas out there. With Senator Hackworth. Senator Hackworth, uh-huh. sorry. He and his wife Angel, they hosted me and my wife. Uh, we stayed at their home and uh, we had a great time. We got to see uh, what folks in that community really, really care about. And we didn't talk about any, I met with a room full of Republicans and got a standing ovation. Not because I was telling them what they wanted to hear. I was telling them about what, the values that we had in common, which is making sure that we give every kid a chance at a first class education like I had, in a public school even. You know, giving every kid a chance to go to school in a safe environment, not having to worry about getting shot up and had the parents come and identify their bodies by DNA samples or hair samples. That's normal stuff. You know, talking to these families about making sure that we give every person uh, who works hard every day, they ought to have a paycheck that respects their dignity and they ought to be able to come home and be able to take care of their families and put food on the table. We're not asking for anything extraordinary. It's not extreme to say that if I work eight hours a day, and I work hard, I should be able to take care of my family. That's not an extreme position. And so I think when they saw that, and saw that I didn't have horns and it was okay, that they said, oh, we, we got a lot in common with these people. And I think the more, I think Democrats miss an opportunity to go out and talk to people. They gotta go talk to everybody, uh, even if they think that they might not be well received. Uh, Cause I don't think regular everyday people Are as polarized as we think, I think the politicians are. But I think everyday people that interact with each other every day at the grocery store and at church and at schools, they're not as polarized as our, when we get back to our tribes and the politics are. And I think we have an opportunity and I think everybody has an opportunity to talk to, to, especially Democrats to go and talk to people in what they would call quote unquote red areas. Even if they never vote for you, you got an opportunity to talk to them and I think you have to do that.
1: Speaker Scott, could you opine a little bit about the interaction between people and their various levels of government, federal, state, local, and the interaction between those three and how you
0: see the state affecting people's lives? Yeah, I think what I do at the state level, I'm trying to listen to my my community where I am. And I think what happened was if everybody's working out, I mean, I think we've turned self-interest into a bad word. I think that's this every community is self-interested. And then we are Commonwealth when all of our self-interest comes together. And I know I got to do a little bit for Southside, so I can get a little bit in Tidewater, or Hampton Roads. I got to do a little bit in Northern Virginia, so I can get a little bit in Southwest or Central VA. And so I think local, state, federal government, and the agencies and uh, professionals, because I know we call them bureaucrats a lot, but I call them professionals. They hold a wealth of knowledge about how systems work, how to improve them. They know better than a lot of folks know because they've been doing this for a long, long time. And many of them have um, goodwill; They all have a good intent about how to make people's lives better. So I think the more that we listen to locals, trying to work with our partners at the federal level to get us the resources that we need and to make laws and regulations, make our lives easier than the state level, we have a pretty easy job. We just have to listen to our constituents. If we listen to our constituents, we normally deliver. And I think that's kind of why Virginia ebbs and flows, because we really are a purple state. We're willing to give, as a state, as a commonwealth, we're willing to give People an opportunity to present an idea, and we're willing to change our minds and move in a different direction. And I think that's what's kept us so balanced and so and so um, and so well off, vis-a-vis other states. We haven't had these big dropouts and drop-offs like other states have. We've been pretty even-keeled through Democratic and Republican governors, through Democratic-controlled legislators, through Republican because we've been really, really close. 51-49 is really, really close. Can't really do any wild stuff, because you can't lose any votes, and then you can't overcome a governor's veto. So you got to have the governor agree, which is a Republican, and everybody together. And I think that's the beauty. Our government in Virginia works the way I wish the United States government would work.
1: But Virginia, on the national level, has really trended blue in the last couple of cycles.
0: Yeah, at the presidential level, but... what do not- you think that is? Because it's, it's it's bigger. Well, part of it is you know, in the last week we've had some amazing candidates. I mean, we had a, I think a Barack Obama probably was the first one to really tilt everything back. He was a, you know, a, a iconic, history, historic figure, uh, and he won Virginia twice. They, twice. The first time I think both times were pretty tight. It wasn't blowouts. And then, um, and then Hillary won Virginia, and we know who's on the other side of Hillary. Uh, not the best candidate, but we stuck with him, uh, and then uh, he then uh, Biden won big. I think he won by 10 or close to it, and Biden will win in Virginia again, uh, and it'll be because he's talking about kitchen table issues, and I think it'll be because he believes and actually believes in democracy. Democracy is a good thing. This whole, you know, he's just not saying we the people. He's not just saying. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and endowed by that Creator with certain inalienable rights. You know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. He means it. He's not saying we're going to need to suspend the Constitution for a little while or I'll be dictator for a day. He's talking about, you know, grown up stuff that's hard. Immigration is hard, but we got to face it. We got some issues that are hard, but we can face them and we can, and we can overcome them. That's what we've always done. That's what we'll do moving forward.
1: For those of us who have lived in Virginia for a while. Reproductive choice abortion seems to be a recurring issue in this state.
0: Or this well, common law. well, you know, when we started this last election cycle, we knew just we didn't we didn't tell people um, what to do. People told us what to do. And we listened. Uh, women and men said women's reproductive health and, and, and choice and reproductive freedom and privacy to make their own decisions about their own bodies. important. It's not extreme to say, uh, I'm a woman, I'll make this choice, not some politician in Richmond or Washington. That's not extreme. That's normal that people make decisions about their own bodies. What's extreme is some Richmond politicians or Washington politicians trying to tell them, which are mostly men, trying to tell a woman what to do with her body. And I think we listen to people and we put forth policy and ideas that we said that we would protect that in, in Virginia we would not go backwards, like every other state in the South has done. And I think women and men resonated to that message. I think it was the number one motivating factor for a lot of voters, uh, and we, and that's why we were able to win. That's a big, that was a big deal for this last election. And it will continue to be a big deal until we're able to either overturn and reinstate Roe at the federal level or put something in codified here in Virginia.
1: As a successful attorney, partner in at a law firm, Speaker of the House here in Virginia, do you pay the right fair share in taxes?
0: Me personally, yes, I think we can probably pay a little bit more. My wife and I we could probably pay a little bit more. she's a dentist she's a dentist, but I think um nobody wants to pay taxes, but I think sometimes to make the system fair, we could pay more, and I think there are some others who could pay more, and I think we need to do a comprehensive look at our tax structure comprehensive look. I think there are people are making a lot more. And I think to have a, our top tax bracket is $17,500. That means that a person that's making $18,000 is in the t- same tax bracket as a p- person making $5 million. That, that doesn't seem very fair. Uh, and I wish we could take a look at it, but it's going to require more than um, the 51 votes we have. It's going to take on, have to have a governor that'll partner with us. And right now we don't have that. By the way, how much do you make as Speaker of the House? I think I'm making thirty thousand dollars. Maybe it's terrible. Why right? y'all do give me a raise? I mean, I was making seventeen as a delegate. I think it's double. Maybe it's 33, 34. We can do better. Come on, Virginia, introduce a bill or do something. I can not introduce a bill to raise my own salary. Maybe somebody will introduce one and make it effective like ten years from now, and we can all vote on it. So nobody can say, "Ah, oh, the politicians are voting on for a raise." So maybe we can do it to make it on, in line with other. Uh,
1: Well, Speaker Scott, for good or bad, you cannot read an interview with you or read an article about you without seeing the words alligator skin cowboy boots, (laughs) fitted designer suits, Uh, Porsche Taycan. 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 Thank you. (laughs) Obviously, I don't have one. Um, 4S. (laughs) What are these things?
0: Uh, When you grow up poor. And you can throw in my Dallas Cowboys season ticket since you want to throw that in there. When you were up poor, you know, that's some things that you say, if I ever get something, these are the things I'm gonna have. And I used to, you know, I went to Texas A&M University and I would see these guys with these, you know, great cowboy boots on and I loved them. And so uh, if you go to A&M right now, you're gonna see a lot of people, men and women, all they wear is cowboy boots and so I got my cowboy boots on now. I'm, a, I'm always have my boots on. Uh, so I keep some boots. I got, I don't know, 20 pair, 30 pair, I don't know. Uh, and uh, I like my suits. Uh, I like to be dressed, you know, I like to be a little clean. You know, I like my shirts to be straight uh, as best I can. Uh, life is short. Uh, so, you know, but I also, I tithe as my pastor. And uh, so I, I give back too. And, and my wife and I, we, we contribute, but... Um, I like a nice car. Like I told you, I was driving a Honda Civic. I, then I graduated to a Jeep Wrangler. And then I said, okay, it's time for the Porsche. And I've been driving Porsches ever since. So, I mean, I'm di- I did okay. I've been lucky, I've been blessed. I'm grateful. So what's next? Ah, uh, let's see. Politically. Politically, I, I, I'm gonna try to stay as, in the, as, as the Speaker of the House as long, for as long as I can. But what's next after that? I don't know, let's see. And let's see see what what God tells us. We'll see, we'll take a chance, see what happens. I know I won't probably be still very long, we'll see. Virginia Speaker of the House of Delegates, Don
1: Scott, thanks for joining us on C-SPAN.
0: Thank you, it was a pleasure, made my day.
1: Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app.